Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show globally, with over 20% of the total fintech podcast audience. In episode 444, we featured a segment on what makes Australia a competitive environment for fintech innovators. We were very fortunate to have the cooperation and support of Austrade, the Australian Trade and Investment Commission, um, and we had the opportunity to speak to some of the fintech companies working out of Australia that have taken their product and services offshore as well. Now, um, Australia does uh, fancy itself as a world leader in fintech uh, with a focus on these various fintech products, services, and investment opportunities within the, the broader fintech ecosystem. Obviously, Australia has to compete regionally with the likes of Singapore and Hong Kong, who have developed strong fintech charters and venture capital support and so forth for fintech startups in those markets, Um, support for fintech visas and so forth in Singapore. We, of course, have the Chinese market with the incredible success of players like Ant Group, Alipay, Tencent WeChat Pay, and others there as well. So Australia has... Uh, a, a challenge, not only globally, but within within the region to demonstrate the growth, the success of the uh, innovative and vibrant fintech ecosystem that is emerging there. In, in episode 444, we spotlighted embedded finance and how fintech and insurance companies are adding value by offering more convenient and personalized experiences. And we looked at the development of customized solutions across the market as well, and how those solutions get up to critical speed, how they scale, and how they um, a- attract investment from offshore players as they start to migrate. But in this week's episode, we're going to return to the Australian fintech market. And this week, we want to focus on some different elements of that evolution there. The focus on payments, payments tech. We want to share a couple of success stories shining a light on the great environment for fintech that, uh, and, and payment tech companies that Australia is seeking to provide. Obviously, Australia would argue that its natural environment and the strong support it has from the government, particularly from the Australian Trade and Investment Commission and fintech ecosystem that is emerging there, has complemented efforts and helped these organisations achieve the growth they've seen to date. Featured in our uh, episode today are conversations with executives from Block and from Zai, who will introduce you to momentarily. Uh, Certainly, the conversation with the team from Block tends to be looking a lot more at the policy side of things, but I think you're going to find it very interesting. It's a chance for me to get back to my roots as an Aussie living in the United States the last uh, 12 years and living offshore from Australia for 20 years. Returning to Australia in this way to talk about fintech's impact is sort of coming full circle. So I hope you enjoy the episode. At this point, we'd like to bring in Paul Byrne. He's the Chief Executive Officer at Zai. Paul joined Zai in October 2016. Um, he was a customer of the company prior to that. Uh, previously, he founded Accelerate Success. He also founded Cadency, a, a SaaS a workflow and finance automation business in 2011. Um, He was also involved in healthcare services uh, with a SaaS provider called Concuity. Prior to that, in 1999, he was uh, the CFO that took Trintech public via an IPO in NASDAQ. So tons of interesting experience. Paul Byrne, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you, Brett. Glad to be here. So I know um, Zai came out of a, a merger, but can you give us a little bit of story about how that came to be? You know how you came to be involved, and you know, um, you know what what uh, 
is the how's the organization ended up after that merger in terms of organizational strategy you know culture etc sure yeah well i when i was setting up my last business in the us uh, cadency i became a customer of currency fair i just used them for moving some you know us dollars cross border back into right. europe and when i retired back to europe i actually met one of the investors in currency fair they're known for a long long time and he asked me to come in and mentor the CEO at the time, uh, Brett Myers, a great guy, uh, Brett, and who founded the company. Uh, he's actually from Perth, another Australian. And he basically um, needed some help with mentoring to sc- for scaling. So I, I mentored Brett for a few weeks, and then Brett asked me would I be interested in investing in the company and taking over as CEO. So I became an investor. And I took over as CEO because I fundamentally believed in the opportunity in the business. It's a great business. It was well run, and it just needed some scaling help. And uh, yeah, we set off on this journey now, which has brought us to Zai. So Currency Fair is a cross-border payment platform. It operates around the world and um, helping, you know, mainly helping white-collar expats um, make international payments cheaper than do- using a bank. And we set about seeking fundraising and we got Standard Charter to invest and they introduced us to Assembly Payments, the Melbourne-based company. Um, and Mel- Assembly's main business is domestic payments in Australia really focused in on the workflow and management of the payment flows, as well as the actual processing of the payments. So when we looked at what Currency Fair did, which was a global payment network, basically, with its own front end for its own customers, we were able to integrate our network with the assembly payments workflow, like create like a hand-in-glove global payment solution, uh, mainly focused on businesses who want to scale, not just out of Australia, but also taking that model from we developed in Australia into international national markets and we're in the middle of launching in a, in a whole bunch of countries at the moment around the world and um, which is fantastic so that's how the merger came about then as like in all good mergers you we needed the name change because we needed a name that had a more international appeal than assembly payments so we we, we actually got our staff to come up with ideas and names and we ran a few workshops and we come up with zai and zai actually is, a, is japanese for trust which obviously is quite, quite critical in, in payments um, you know, and so it does mean something, uh, you know, as, as a business, as a name. And that allows us, you know, to really rebrand the company and take it global, which is what we're doing at the moment. So you've focused more on the workflow side of payments. Obviously, you know, we, you know, um, apart from the, the whole fintech space where there's been explosion of, of payments capabilities uh, globally, you know, we're now talking about a lot more automation of payments. We're talking about the ability for, you know, um, devices to make their own payment, you know, automated payments with smart contracts and so forth. So, um, you know, uh, the, the workflow part of it, um, who is the typical user of the, the workflow engines that you create on the payment side? Yeah, well, today we have a, a couple of uh, large, I would say, vertical opportunities in Australia. One is PropTech. Um, where, for example, we would process uh, all of the rental payments coming in, all of the deductions for management fees, for charges, for repairs and maintenance uh, from you know, the rent and then settle automatically to the landlords. And that's all done basically through, as you said, automated payments. And uh, we call it workflow, uh, which, which is orchestrated by the platform itself. And the second, I uh, think, big opportunity for us is marketplaces. You know, so food, like, for example, food ordering marketplaces where you literally are taking money in and you're passing money uh, back to a number of different participants, whether it's the delivery company delivering the food, whether it's the um, supplier of the food, i.e. the person who is listed on the marketplace, or whether it's the marketplace operator themselves. And you obviously are making deductions for taxation and other things as well. So it's really that automation uh, of the flows and the orchestration of the flows is where we is our sweet spot. Um, and then doing that obviously globally across cross-border allows us to service Australian businesses who want to go global, Australian business, and, and obviously also scale with those businesses, they add more products and features to their own product set. So they're just two, two good examples of, of many examples of mm. what we do. Now, you know, being, you know, based out of Australia in terms of, uh, you know, that's where the business was born. You know, what do you think it is about the Australian fintech market that has really enabled you to become now a global player? Yeah, well, the Australia is a great place for innovation, mostly because it's self-contained. Right. So most, you know, there's a lot of innovation in Australia because it's 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 its own continent. So you, you end up you have your own community ecosystem. So it's a great market to try new things and to innovate in before you go global because it, population wise it's big enough 
to be self-contained. So you can test lots of different different things in your product set. And it's also sophisticated enough as an economy and obviously quite a wealthy economy that you're able to basically get people to pay for products and services as you develop them and scale them. And so it is a, it is a good ecosystem. As you rightly said at the start, like the Australian fintech ex- scene has exploded. Like five years ago, we looked at doing an IPO in Australia at currency fair level and there was some interest, but there was only maybe 10 or 15 fintech businesses in Australia. Now there's 300 members of fintech Australia, including ourselves. So there's been a huge explosion in, I guess, just generally adoption of technology um, in payments, fueled partly by COVID, but also being fueled by the recognition that consumer-driven financial services is the way forward. And fintech leads the innovation into consumer-driven financial services compared to banks, which are do our, our laggards in, in innovation. And have you found that you know some of the lessons you've learned in Australia in terms of digital scaling have have worked for you offshore? You know you've been able to maintain you know a low cost of uh, customer acquisition, um, you know, and so forth as you've expanded. Yeah, well, like there is a bit of there is a difference between Australia and elsewhere. Like the NPP system in Australia, like the real time payment system, does operate a little bit differently than elsewhere. Um, and now with the introduction of pay two in Australia, like in, in the summertime, I know only one bank has publicly said they're adopting it in the summer, but like it, 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 it is real-time direct debiting. So the technology in, in Australia is a bit more advanced than elsewhere. So we've had to adopt some of our solutions for other markets, but in terms of scaling and hiring and building a team of people capable of executing a plan, yeah, we've been able to take all the lessons of Australia into the other markets we're operating in, whether it's Hong Kong or Singapore, the EU, um, UK, um, you know, we, we hope to be launched in the US imminently, basically as well. And we've got other countries on the roadmap like Canada and some other countries in Southeast Asia for next year and the UAE as well. And, you know, obviously we get great support from Austrade um, in, you know, in, in accelerating our growth into those markets as well. But but from our point of view, yes, it, it, Australia is a good market to scale from because as I said, it's big enough to, to, to have a, a core business which is strong enough to support global expansion. So you mentioned Austrade there. Um, could you talk about how Austrade helped you with your international journey? Um, you know, particularly um, you know the Standard Chartered uh, um, venture venture investment, and you know, the, the, from a regulatory perspective, helping you um, off, make the move offshore. Yeah, yeah well, uh, the, be- the best benefit Austrade have for us really is in, is a marketing support, like sales and marketing support. So it's using their network of contacts in individual geographies we go we go into to build connections locally so for example in the uae they introduce those two different people by using their rolodex you know and some of those people may probably end up being local partners for us likewise in the us now we're hoping to be you know do some partner marketing with them and some trade event marketing with them we are basically co-branded marketing hopefully as well so they're they are fantastic in terms of their their ability to connect you with the right people in individual geographies as you expand and scale Great. Let's talk about some of the modality issues around payments. You know, we've got a lot of new tech coming into the space. Obviously, mobile wallets have exploded in the world scene, you know, with in 2017, mobile wallets surpassing cards in terms of day-to-day you know, payments, particularly driven by the Chinese ecosystem. But when we talk about mobile wallets, we're now, you know, talking about, uh, you know, the metaverse with cloud-based wallets. We're talking about smart speakers, you know, identity, identity verification technologies, contactless systems, mobile point of sale, your phone, you know, smartphone turning mm. into a, a POS terminal and things like that. Um, you know, obviously, as this expands, you know, you, you get greater reach. But how do you see this playing out over the next five to 10 years in terms of these technologies? Yeah, well, I think I would, step, I would take a step back from the technology and I would look at the way the market is evolving, right? And in a sense of what are the key things that market needs to address to make these devices become you know, omnipresent for payments? So absolutely, um, mobile phones will become your new bank account. And that's already happening anyway. Um, but a couple of other things need to happen. First of all, the, everything needs to become real time. And there's a big move to make everything real time. And like um, some you know, real time online banks are real time, but most, most cross-border transactions are still not real time. So I think there will definitely be a move into real time uh, payments. Now, the consequence of that is you need better KYC, K, now know your customer technologies, better anti-money laundering technologies, and better security. Right, because ultimately, if your mobile device is your bank account, then basically, if your mobile phone is stolen, then who's what's to stop people using contactless payments on your you know, you know technology to override your mobile phone, and consequently, you know, you end up in a situation where your money is lost or stolen effectively. So I think there's going to be a big push in security technology uh, and in you know KYC and AML type technologies, which will support 
the, the continued proliferation of, of mobile wallets and other types of smart speakers becoming payment devices. Like for example, you know, we have an, we have enabled Alexa to, to Alexa to actually make payments, right? Um, from a currency fair. But there's a huge amount of security that goes around that because it's it's a voice recognition payment system, basically. So there's a lot of more work to be done on with I think on taking the security area. Stable coins will basically make it easier for people to store money digitally instead of storing fiat currency. So we, we we're pushing a lot down that path in the future. And that will enable real-time payments from anywhere, right? And the be and the benefit of stablecoin is you have provenance. You know who owned the money at any point in time. Unlike cash, you don't know who had the cash last before you, other than the shopkeeper who gave you your change, right? So there's a lot of th- interesting things happening in payments, which you're right will make payments omnipresent, basically. And you, the need for transactional banking will pretty much dissipate over the next ten or fifteen years. And do you think that the regulators are sort of? I know there's very different regulatory environments instead of in, in respect to payments, but as this real-time payments push comes and these, uh, you know, KYC and IDV requirements and AML, you know, sort of, uh, you know, become standardised, do you see global regulation around payments sort of coalescing or do you think you're still going to have to deal with, you know, vastly different regulations at different markets? I, I, one thing we do see is a lot more cooperation between regulators. Like a lot more of them are adopting the same types of standards now before they grant you a license. And obviously we're, we have a prime for license in many, many countries. So we see standardization of the application process. We see standardization of the expected level of controls and integrity that you need to have as a business. And that's why we only work with tier one banks, for example, because as you go global, you really want to have your own ecosystem to be tier one enabled, right? And scaled. Um, you don't want to be dealing with you know, peripheral players in the marketplace and bring reputational risk to yourself and your partners. So we do see more focus coming from the banks, uh, sorry, the regulators on who your partner, who you, who's in your network, who are your partners ultimately, because you're only as weak as, you know, strong as your weakest link in your network. Um, and that's important for us. I think there will, will be more global adoption of uh, regulation. I think there will be definitely, um, you know, US and, and Europe will coalesce more in a similar regulation. You know, I think people are watching, looking at what's happening in China and the way China regulates, which is different to the way the rest of the world regulates the individual businesses. But they're learning a lot from the way China operated and the way the, the super apps have developed in China, basically. And, and the ECMY wallet then, now, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, and that's but that ECMY wallet I think is just the first step for everybody, every other currency country to look at stablecoin or look at their own version, um, of of an e an e wallet currency, um, and like we're looking into that as well, and, and you know developing some of that technology as well, um, and that you know and stablecoin is just a, it's completely different to crypto to cryptocurrencies, which are you know ultimately a trading or speculative currency, where stablecoins are just one for one back to the currency. So I do think there'll, there'll be a lot more time spent by regular trying to understand the difference between the different types of electronic currencies and which ones you know are tradable tradable on a day-to-day basis like stablecoin you know or the ecmy and which ones are more investable assets you know the same as a house or a share or stock like cryptocurrencies would be so i think you'll you'll, you'll see a lot more effort um, from regulators to kind of coalesce globally on standards and um, yeah i agree now, um, you know, you're based in Dublin today. Um, is the, uh, you know, the coming Australia-UK free trade agreement um, that comes into force later this year, do you, do you expect that to have any impact on the business? We do. We expect to have a very positive impact on the business because obviously the first port of call for a lot of, well, for a lot of Australian companies is the UK. Um, you know, the next two will probably be Singapore and the US. Um, but so because we already have a presence in the UK, um, we would expect, you know, that to be, very positive for our, for our revenue flows or trade and trade flows, and therefore you know opens up a lot of opportunity for us, and um, servicing Australian customers and obviously servicing UK customers who are expanding in Australia, right? Because it's a two way trade flow, um, yeah, yeah. basically as well. So we yeah we do see that as a great opportunity and um, for us. Great. Well, Paul, how can people find out more about Zai? Yeah, uh, basically uh, hellozai.com is is our website. Or, or we also have a consumer brand called Currency Fair, which is the one with services high network individuals. So. It's, um, currencyfair.com and uh, yeah we're more than happy to help anybody or answer any questions from anybody who has a better better business and um, ultimately we're a customer driven company and uh, basically solving real time real payment problems for people excellent well thanks for joining us on breaking banks and all the best with the uh, the venture thanks a million brett take care thank you so at this point we would uh, love to invite damien kasabji head of international public policy at block previously known as Square, obviously. Damien's uh, based out in Byron Bay, hanging out with Chris Hemsworth and uh, uh, <laughs> Matt Damon, right? 
Um, well, yeah, you do see them downtown sometimes. Thank yes, you, exactly. Well, you know, Byron Bay is not a bad place to to be. I think it's also the uh, the Mary Jane capital of Australia. But let's not get into that. All right. Um, so, Damien, um, you've been in this space for a while. You were um, you, you've obviously been in the public policy and government affairs space. Um, you're responsible for managing policy at Block, but including the business units at Square, Afterpay, Cash App outside of. The US. You also uh, consulted with the Australian Prime Minister's office um, previously, doing some work with both Uber and Google. And you spent time in San Francisco before heading back to uh, to Australia at the start of the uh, the COVID. I understand. Yeah, that's right. And you know, Brett, it's good to be with you. Um, you know, we very much enjoy listening to your uh, podcast, and it's certainly something that is. Um, you know, uh, well, uh, uh, well listened to and, and and talked about amongst you know our circles, people who are interested in fintech and tech in general. So appreciate you having awesome. me on. No, no, but, um, it's great. You know, to, to go to a bit of your background, I think it is, you know, an emerging area that has been really something that has been brought to bear in the last decade. That people who have got government experience and know how to work in government. Um, need to also kind of um, be able to be flexible enough to work with companies as companies emerge and challenge the environment that uh, that exists. You know, I, I did work on digital economy um, policy in the Prime Minister's office. So it was a natural fit to think about companies like Google and then afterwards Uber, companies that are really trying to do something different where mm. you turn up and the regulatory landscape that exists is effectively built around old industry. So right. this is, you know, you'll see most companies now having, you know, well-equipped public policy functions to, to help guide companies deal with that. No, I, I, I mean, obviously that's something that you and I share in common, that experience in having to having to talk to policy setting, um, you know, organisations or, uh, you know, working on, on, on policy. Um, you know, I can say even, you know, even in the US, um, you know, having done some work with the Obama administration back in 2014 on fintech, you know, one of the areas we identified was the required reform to uh, rule in the US, they call the Community Reinvestment Act, which was written in 1977 to define how financial inclusion should be handled. Well, 50 years on, there's, you know, significant technology changes around that. But this is a matter of law and trying to get this changed, um, even though it's woefully out of date, is still extremely difficult um, because of all the stakeholders involved and so forth. Um, And, um, you know, that's maybe one of the reasons in the US why fintech has not been at the regulatory forefront. Uh, compared with markets like Australia or Singapore or, um, you know, China, for example, where there's been a lot more progressive uh, legislation around fintech uh, licensing and so forth. But because you've got at the heart of US branch operations, this Community Reinvestment Act, which which means that some banks that have branches in and they're the last branch in a town aren't able to close it because it's deemed uh, as a as a, a a, a essential mechanism for financial access. Um, but, um, you know, of, of course, in other uh, jurisdictions, such as uh, in Australia, we now have fintech licensing. 86400 were just recently acquired by ANZ, um, yeah. you know, in, in Australia. Um, but from a policy perspective, where do you think the most significant changes are coming in financial services right now, apart from the emergence of these specialised fintech charters. You you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the the emerging theme that we're seeing is what is government trying to do in relation to the reduction of consumer harm? So a lot of the laws that have been written have been written with good intention. They've been written with the intention of how do you protect the consumer at the end of the day? Unfortunately, though, some of those laws are not fit for a new environment. And, you know, Afterpay, where I've worked for, you know, for four years now, is a, is a clear example of that. Even the definition of credit in most right. jurisdictions, including including the US, something that has a zero interest rate is not defined 
as credit and doesn't come under the normal or the, the set regulatory framework. So it does mean that from our perspective, we either need to find a licensing arrangement that works for us at a state level or work with government to ensure there are uh, new frameworks. And at the end of the day, what we have found, especially in the UK and Australia, is a sense that what are we trying to get to from a consumer outcomes uh, perspective? Now, just to give you one example of something that we've been dealing with in the UK and the FCA is that there is this concept of a merchant license if the merchant is brokering credit. So right. you think about the old world where a merchant was selling you a $5,000 sofa set and also said, well, I'm going to sell you the credit that comes with it. They yep. needed a license for that. And, you know, we turn up in the UK and they go, okay, well, is this kind of credit broking? Is the fact that you're allowed to offer a product that allows someone to pay for something in four instalments credit? And does that mean every single merchant in the UK needs it? a license to offer our product? Well, for us, obviously the answer is no because there's a different risk profile, but that kind of gives you a very practical example of the kind of laws that we come up against. Now, it's interesting because one of the other elements of Afterpay, and, and you know, Afterpay really was a pioneer in buy now, pay later. Of course, we're more familiar with Klarna and Affirm out in, out in the US and in Europe, um, but Afterpay was a real leader in, in this respect. But, um, you know, the reality is this type of contextualization of credit, credit access at the moment of purchase, sort of built into the purchase purchase experience is an obvious evolution of this technology. Um, you know, we can see this even potentially happening with home mortgages in the future where you walk into a, a listed property and have an offer for financing there on the spot. Um, so I, I do think this is a natural progression of lowering friction in terms of access to um, credit with, with the technology piece. But as a policymaker or as a policy setter, um, how do you see, um, you know, products like Buy Now, Pay Later in, in that progression of the way credit seems to be evolving? Yeah, look, it's a good question and you kind of hit on an important point here around the kind of immediacy of the product. You know, the, the product um, after pay, just to explain to your audience, is, is simply a pay-in-for product. Um, it was invented in Australia, the founder's are Australian. So yes, you know, you there is the Klarna's and the Affirms and others in the world who are doing similar things, but they did start off in what I would call a finance perspective where, you know, similar to a credit card, there is this concept of I'm going to approve $5,000 or $10,000 for you as a line of credit. What Afterpay said was, this is not a line of credit. This is something where at the point of purchase, as you say, you can make a decision to purchase a pair of jeans instead of $100 for four installments of $25. We take on the risk as the company and the merchant gets the sale. What the consumer does is not have to enter into a line of credit situation. They don't have to be in a situation where they've got a $10,000 debt credit card exposure. Right. They can simply just have the $100 exposure. Uh, but what we do is ensure that there are kind of safety mechanisms throughout the system. So yes, it's easy and quick, but it's also safer. One, the debt is lower. Two, 25% is due up front. Three, most people are using their debit card, like 98% of people are using their own money and savings to make the purchase. So it's debt in a kind of very different way. It's very transparent. The payments are due every two weeks and there are reminders in app and, and, and through text message that these payments are there to be made. So from our perspective, this is a safer way for consumers. And what we've built a business model on is making money from the merchant, not the consumer. And that, I suppose, is a key difference between us and traditional credit. Right. Now, it's interesting. There's interesting psychological elements to this. Uh, clearly, the psychology of being able to make a purchase and having it done in a, a fairly frictionless way with access to credit. Um, but the other element is also the credit management piece of this. As you said, the, the two weekly reminder in app and, and the coaching element, um, you know, that you sort of build in from a, a nudges perspective, um, that also would, would um, you know, I assume, be better from a risk profile perspective. But talk about how consumer psychology plays into this. 
It's a great question. And look, the surveys we've done around this is that consumers without us even prompting describe Afterpay as a budgeting tool, to your point. You know, so they don't see it as a line of credit because it's not a line of credit. They see that the money's coming out of their debit or saving account and that they're using a debit card. So there is a psychology one in using your own money. I know that I get paid every two weeks or every month and I can smooth my payments over by knowing when the money's coming out of my accounts. The second thing here is that you know your limit at any one point because you're being told in app when the actual payments are due. We actually see one third of payments get paid early because consumers know, okay, my payment is due at a certain time, but you can press a button and, and, and make the payment early. So from our perspective, there's a psychology here that's one around budgeting, but also around this concept of smoothing out your payments and knowing when your paycheck um, is, is, is coming through. But look, there's also this kind of concept of constant information. You know, a millennial now is a digital native. Um, th this concept of constant information is very different to a credit card. You're not sure exactly when your payment is due. You're not exactly sure when you're going, you're going to get tripped up. A lot of credit card companies say that, oh, well, if you pay your, your, your outstanding balance off every month, then you pay no interest. But what we've seen both in the US and the UK is that more than 50% of consumers are paying some form of interest payment. And a lot of them are paying interest payment because they didn't realize when their, their, their payment was due. At the end of the day, Afterpay's best customer is one that pays on time because we're clipping the ticket from the merchant. So when the merchant sells the pair of jeans for $100, we're taking a percentage out of that from the merchant and we're trying to not charge the consumer. Whereas for a credit card, the best customer is someone who is late paying that interest-free. 19%, yeah. It's, yeah. Absolutely. And look, when interest rates have been at their lowest in, in a generation, we've still got an average of 19 20% interest rate cards out there. Do you know that the credit card industry has a name for those, those customers? They call them revolvers. Because they're well, revolving that line of credit. They, they love revolvers. They make the most money out of revolvers. 100%. And you mentioned 19%. Some of those revolvers over time, especially if that debt is kept for more than a year, are paying 40, 50, 60% interest it's on crazy. the original uh, purchasing. So, look, what consumers are responding to and the market that, that is being disrupted here by paying for specifically is what you've described as this revolving debt cycle. People are saying, that's the old way, that causes me stress. Um, I get charged something that I wasn't sure. This is clear and transparent. It's over six weeks. I know when the payments are due. Um, so um, that is precisely what is being disrupted here in the marketplace. And what we are seeing um, is an increase. And you know, this has been a consumer-led and a consumer-driven uh, change in in the marketplace, and you know, in a few years, um, although we're kind of a small segment of overall retail, we are seeing now that, from an online perspective, in places like the US and Australia, buy now pay later is accounting for somewhere between ten to fifteen percent of all kind of retail online purchases. So it is taking a significant section of the the market again, consumer driven. So Damien, um, you know, you you talked about. The, the Australian perspective here, um, you know, Australian fintech has come a long way in a fairly short period of time. They started a little late, I would say, yeah. you know, globally. Um, but, you know, obviously, um, you know, we, we are seeing a ton of stuff uh, coming out of Australia. We've got Atlassian, um, Afterpay. We, we see, of course, uh, some, some, you know, some pretty significant uh, um Challenger banks emerging, 86400 did well with their acquisition. Uh, you know, Westie over at uh, Vault, um, you know, yep. uh, you know, yep. and others are making some some good progress. But um, what would you say are the opportunities, particularly around mobile wallet and mobile payments in the Australian market? Because early on, of course, there was a great deal of resistance to Apple Pay. There was, there was. Look, it's a good question and I kind of want to answer that in, in two ways. I think what is very clear about the Australian market is technological adoption 
is one of the highest in the world, you know, highest percentage of um, smartphone users in the world, um, one of the highest rates of tap pay payments in the world. So there is this concept of fast adoption uh, in, in Australia. I think that's the, that, that's the first point. Um, the, the second point is that the adoption of Apple Pay was more a resistance from the banking sector, not one exactly. that was, yeah. um, you know, that, that emanated from from consumers. I do think there is kind of this question as to, you know, what does the future look like of a ubiquitous service that is not necessarily controlled through one NFC chip in one phone. And, you know, that space is moving quickly. Like, you know, looking at the Cash App product that's, you know, available in the US now, the fact that you can use a barcode and bypass all kind of uh, Visa, MasterCard, Rails, NFC chips, et cetera, is kind of its own little revolution in relation to the fact that less processing costs for merchants, quicker access for consumers. So this space is going to constantly get disrupted. So I think it is interesting to watch. And I do think that Australia is a place that uh, is a good testing place as well as a place of fast adoption. But to your point, I think that, you know, what has happened in the last five years is that Australia has shifted from fast adopters to creators themselves. You know, Afterpay is very proud of the fact it is the first consumer-facing tech to go from Australia to Silicon Valley rather than the other way around. You know, Australians are very used to receiving the Ubers, Airbnbs, Twitters, Googles and Facebooks of the world. So this is really the first time a US and UK consumer are kind of using a, an Australian tech product and, and innovating for, for the first time. And we hope to see more of that. Um, but to your point, you know, Atlassian is one of the, you know, from a market share perspective, one of Australia's biggest companies uh, listed on the New York uh, Stock Yeah, they've Exchange. done well. Yeah, and there's companies like Canva coming through um, that, you know, are not listed yet, but are kind of probably the largest in their space around the world. So it is it is emerging. Um, we're seeing a lot coming out of the UK as well, Revolut, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think what COVID has done as well is kind of basically ensure that, you know, people who want to do something innovative don't necessarily have to be in Silicon Valley. Um, and yes, there's going to always be hubs in Silicon Valley, but it is clearly very possible to to work on stuff um, around the world now in, in a way that kind of didn't exist before. All right. Well, hopefully that'll, uh, you know, continue to mean that Australian companies make uh, traction globally. Certainly we see a lot of them coming offshore for for funding, but because uh, you know, we're just running out of time, Damien. But how can people find out a little bit more about uh, Afterpay and about uh, some of the the innovations you're talking about? Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's really easy. Afterpay.com or .com.au, depending on where you are. Um, we are part of Block now. I'm very kind of excited about being part of that ecosystem. Um, you know, uh, the fact that we're partnering with with companies uh, or now part of a company rather that has cash app um, the square terminals is right into crypto is, is something very exciting for us and basic and, and for the future of, of payments so um, yeah do check it out afterpay.com fantastic well thank you Damien Kasabji uh, who is the head of International Public Policy at Block and, and Afterpay. Um, also, a call out to Austrade, who helped us put this show together. Listeners looking to learn more about investment or trade opportunities in Australian fintech should definitely reach out to the Australian Trade and Investment Commission, also known as Austrade. Check out www.austrade.gov.au slash fintech. That's www.austrade.gov.au dot gov gov dot au slash fintech damien thanks again for joining us and uh you know keep us in the loop we'd love to have you back on the show at some point in the future of course my pleasure brandon if you could um give me five seconds to also thank austrade who you know as a young australian company it is kind of um very important that we that there is this kind of infrastructure around the world um yeah. enabling and helping companies like ours um, um kind of prosper overseas as well so you know thanks fantastic and thank you awesome Brett. hello listeners i'm brett king the host of breaking banks together myself and dr richard petty 
have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Well, we are backstage at Consensus with my good pal Henry Aslani, and welcome back on to Breaking Banks, dude. Thanks, How are you? thanks, Brad. Good to see you here in Austin, Texas. So, uh, tell me a bit about um, what's been happening at Consensus, and um, you know what what have what have you seen as the trends here? What's the big discussion points? Absolutely, you know, I've been coming out Consensus for four or five years every year. It's absolutely, every year it is becoming more and more interesting. Just to put things in perspective, this year there's over seventeen thousand registered attendees, which makes it one of the biggest crypto conferences in the world. Some of the big trends that have really caught my attention, one of them is a number of institutional investors you are here. You're right. seeing for the first time a lot of pension funds, a lot of large allocators, sovereigns who are here learning about crypto and looking at how ways they can allocate to the ecosystem. But at the same time, maybe in the next room, you're having you know entrepreneurs, developers thinking about Web3 and really the cutting edge of DeFi. So very interesting how these worlds are coming together, but definitely one of the big trends is how the industry is becoming more institutionalized and at the same time by the way how the policymakers and regulators are coming as well which many of them were here this week as well absolutely now i understand you also had a book signing here for new new book tell us about the new book uh, absolutely i'm very excited after two and a half years of hard work uh, my latest book the book of crypto uh, just came out it's really the uh, title is the complete guide to understanding bitcoin cryptocurrencies and digital assets and really what I, my goal with that book was in 400 pages we really provide to anyone who wants to learn about crypto a solid foundation. Really, I cover not only the history of money, how we ended up, you know, from the calories and using cattle as money to what we have now, but really the foundations to, to everything we're seeing in crypto. For example, I cover how Bitcoin works, what is proof of work, what is proof of stake. I cover the top 20 cryptocurrencies we see in the market, but also some of the verticals as well. For example, stable coins, central bank digital currencies, uh, what a DeFi, Web3, NFTs. So my goal is that my audience is, let's say somebody who's in fintech, wants to learn about crypto, this book will give a perfect bridge, or somebody who's not into in crypto right. or fintech at all, this book will at least provide them the foundations to be able to either work in the space, invest in the space, or just be more active. And this is interesting because you, you also, you've done, a, of course, a lot of programs um, as a well, as an academic or a theorist in the space. So you can bring the practical expertise of running, you know, crypto programs for PwC. And now you're starting, you're starting a hedge fund in the space. Uh, plus, you've also got the, the academic experience. So it helps you put together a, a really, uh, a really solid, um, you know, textbook on that, if you like. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That was one of the reasons, uh, you know, as uh, Brett, you may know, I've been teaching like fintech since 2015. Right, yeah. And obviously, there's a lot of my education. That was content. at Hong Kong University? At uh, University of Hong Kong, right. yeah, where I'm an adjunct professor. And uh, of course, I have a lot of educational material, I have online courses, I have a lot of uh, things right. on my YouTube pages. And as you mentioned, I'm right now launching a new crypto hedge fund. But really, what was interesting is that uh, often I meet people, whether they're policymakers and regulators or allocators and investors who want to learn about this space. And they often ask me, Henry, what is the one book or the one resource, one resource that is reliable, right. trustworthy, that I know I can read? It will give me good overview, a good right. foundational, and that was the rationale. So you have to build book. it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And actually, I'll be launching yeah. a course as well on it as well, a full online course and physical course. You know, on it. Um, for my first book, Bank Two, was a very similar um, in that um, I, I was sitting there beating my head against that 
you know, wall of apathy against digital. This is back in the, you know, um, like 2005, 2006 timeframe. And I realized that there were so many people like me in banks and in FIs that were struggling with this. And there were new creators trying to break out. Um, and just having, um, you know, someone consolidate all of those ideas and themes and say this is the way things are going to go it's fairly inevitable and you know these are our paths and options i think is is hugely useful for the industry so well done absolutely no thank you and i think that was one of the drivers behind as well for example if you're a young university student you can go to an event meet up and ask and raise your hand and ask a question However, if you're a bank CEO, right. you're a regulator, you're a policymaker, you cannot go to these events. Yeah. And this was actually one of the, the rationales why behind uh, drafting the book. To be, you know, it's very tricky to write a book about crypto because the ecosystem moves very quickly. For example, right. I wrote a section about DeFi in January 2020 where total value lock right. in DeFi was less than a billion dollars. Now it's yeah. $200 billion. Right. So I had to rewrite a lot of the sections. The section on CBDC had to be written as well. But this is why the book is written in a way that provides the foundations of it. So if, as, you know, even though DeFi will evolve uh, greatly over the next couple of years, anybody who reads the book will understand it, understand the nuances, and will be able to actually uh, grasp some of the latest developments that may happen. So, so one of the issues we have heard a lot of discussion about here at uh, Consensus is people saying, you know, is the market going to recover? How quickly is it going to recover? Are we going to go into a sustained bear market? Is there going to be a global recession? Is it going to be stagflation? You know, all of this conversation, you know, I've heard at the bars in the evenings and, and so forth. But um, um, in terms of fundamentals, why fundamentally do you believe that crypto is still, um, you know, on a positive path and, and is is going to be a core part of the system we move to? No, absolutely, Brett. I mean, there's obviously, we're definitely entering a bear market right now, not only because of the macro conditions, like you mentioned, right. but within the crypto ecosystem, we're seeing it as well. Uh, you know, I think, first of all, the trajectory is very clear. To put things in perspective, five years ago, there was literally less than five million people with an account at a crypto exchange, for example. Now, according to the latest data, is around 300 million people with an account at a crypto exchange. I'm convinced that over the next couple of years, we're going to hit the billion users of digital assets around the world. Uh, you know, what, what's really interesting is when you look at some of the practical applications that we are seeing. Yes, people are speculating and using digital assets, you know, uh, as, as they've done for many years. But now we're really seeing really practical use cases coming in. Not only, you know, uh, uh, you know in elements like NFTs or CBDCs uh, that, you know, you discuss many times on your show, but really when we look at like the day-to-day usability. For example, how can we use stable coins right now in Ukraine, for example, with what's happening there? How can we use it for cross-border payments? How can we use stable coins in countries where there's like hyperinflation right now? Uh, and you know, how can we use a crypto in, in digital assets, you know, whether it's tokenization or you know, for, for uh, being able to authenticate, authenticate or have the documents that we know are, are authenticated right. or are authentic. So there's a lot of uh, uses that we are seeing from that perspective. I have to say, um, I've been through many bear markets. I've been in crypto since 2014. I've seen many bull markets, bear markets, and really the momentum, the talent, the, the, the creativity, as well as the capital that is right now in crypto makes me more bullish than I've ever been in this industry. That's great. Um, what have you enjoyed about Consensus? What do you, you know, is there anything different from this year? Um, you know, what have been the highlights for you? Yeah, you know, uh, it's been very interesting. Uh, uh, consensus this year for the first year moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, it used to be in uh, the last years were virtual. Before right. that, it was in New York. Uh, the first the first thing we realized is a sheer number of attendees. Right. So there's 17,000 registered uh, attendees, but there's way more that are just in the city right, having yeah. meetings in the hotel rooms. Like it's often the case. Uh, what I found personally the most um, interesting for me was really not only the fact that many regulators were here, not only the fact that many institutional allocators were here, but also how um, the industry now is more mature and professional. Yes. Uh, there was an era four or five years ago, it was what I call crypto 1.0. Right, the Wild uh, West. Know, yeah. Exactly. It was very, you know, we're very early days, it was very entrepreneur driven. Right now what we're seeing is that this is these are becoming real businesses with not only where there's a bit more maturity as well, 
other business planning, and even boring stuff like governance, processes, procedure. How did these entrepreneurs now are? are that happens are when you start getting big investment dollars coming in, right? It helps, I think, put some a bit more framework around it. Uh, but really, it's been uh, it's been really amazing seeing how the ecosystem has been evolving. Uh, the couple of things that I'm watching now right now for the next uh, you know couple of months and years is what's going to happen on the regulatory front. Uh, of course, following the Luna crash that we yeah. had a couple of weeks ago, uh, what's going to fall out on that? And that's a very good example. I mean, despite that. We literally had $40 billion wiped out overnight from right. our company. Ecosystem has been doing pretty well. You know, exchanges are still functioning. There's been margin calls, but you know, everything functions quite well, which is very different from what we had in traditional finance in 08, yes. for example. So that's one thing I'm following. I'm following what's happening on the broader policymaking space and regul regulators, following what a lot of these alloc institutional allocators are doing, and also then what a lot of the money managers are doing as well. I mean, to put things in perspective, at, um, according to a recent uh, report that was published this week, about 67 percent of traditional hedge funds are looking at increasing their allocation to crypto this year. Right. And to put that in perspective, I mean, the total hedge fund um, uh, AUM is $4 trillion. Right, exactly. uh, there was about $400 billion of assets that were surveyed. If 1% increase on that is already more than the total AUM of crypto native hedge funds, yeah, yeah. which is $4 billion. Yeah. So a lot of activity there. And of course, following what's happening on the NFT side, I think very interesting developments there. And of course, uh, what's happening on the broader Web3 right. uh, frontier. So very interesting. And we we had uh, over 200 billion invest in fintech last year. The fintech uh, market size is now over 7 trillion. So, you know, we're, this is a, a trend globally that sort of seems to be largely inevitable in terms of this shift to digitization. Yeah, I mean, you know, from, from the early days, we started uh, coming on your show. I mean, where fintechs were still fringe. I know, I know. fintech has become uh, uh, mainstream uh, from that perspective. And I think we're seeing it in every perspective. And there's other verticals as well. One of them is gaming. Yep. I really oh, love, yeah. I think the, yeah. the combination of gaming and crypto, uh, where we have over 3 billion gamers in the world. I think that's another big development we're seeing. And, that and the metaverse is very similar. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Fantastic. Well, listen, um, where can people find the book of crypto? The complete guide to understanding Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and digital assets. Uh, best way is on Amazon. You can buy the book, The Book of Crypto, under my name, Henry Arslanian. And there's a lot of links of it on my LinkedIn, on my Twitter. It's all Henry with an I, Arslanian, A-R-S-L-A-N-I-N. So always happy to people to read it. Feel Fantastic. free to leave some feedback on the book. Yeah, we'll definitely post that on social as we air the episode as well. So Henry Arslanian, um, thank you for joining us on Breaking Banks once again. Great to have you here, uh, Brett, in, uh, in Austin, Texas. See ya. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.